The scripture reading for this morning comes from Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, you can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet some of you yet, and it's good to be with you on this Easter morning. Uh, We are still taking a break from our Acts sermon series during Holy Week. Um, And uh, we've been looking instead at accounts of the triumphal entry, the crucifixion, and today the resurrection, uh, accounts from the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, you know, I had to keep writing what I was going to say there because I kept saying that we've been looking at the last week of Jesus's life. I think I even said that in previous services, but it's actually not the last week of his life because there is no last week of Jesus's life. He resurrected. He is alive today. So, you know, then I thought what I would say instead is that it was his last week on earth, but that's actually not true either. Jesus sticks around for like 40 more days after his resurrection until he eventually ascends. But either way, you get the picture. We've been looking at Luke during Holy Week, and maybe you've caught on to this, but the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are actually both written by Luke, and so there's some thematic overlap, especially in today's passage. And today, we're going to be looking at what Jesus was up to after he resurrected. What were some of the things that Jesus did after he resurrected? What were some of the things that Jesus said after he resurrected? And in fact, our our three points today are just going to be quick little pull quotes from what Jesus says in these last verses of Luke's gospel. And so our three points today will be, number one, touch me. Number two, thus it is written. And number three, you are witnesses. And so let's begin with our first point, touch me. It seems like uh, nowadays everyone is obsessed with true crime entertainment, uh, especially stories that surround solving 
murders. You know, it could be a podcast or a TV show or a limited series. We're all fascinated by it. And it's gotten to the point where I think that most people probably feel like they know what it would take to solve a murder case. And so, you know, pop quiz, what is the most important piece of evidence you need to have when putting together a murder case? The body. You have to have a dead body because without a dead body, you can't even be sure that someone has died, let alone that a murder has taken place or that the person you're accusing did it, right? You have to find the dead body. It's the most important piece of evidence in a murder case. Without the dead body, you know, you can't even know the person is really dead. They maybe could have just run away. They could have been kidnapped. It could all have been a misunderstanding. It's the most crucial piece of evidence. You have to find the dead body. In a very similar way, the easiest way for people to prove that Jesus did not resurrect would be to produce the dead body. We could all put this talk of resurrection to bed if you just take us to Jesus' body. If he died and is still dead, then there's a body somewhere. So where is it? It's nowhere. There is no dead body. The tomb is empty because Jesus has resurrected. He has risen from the dead. And Jesus himself goes through great pains to demonstrate that he is resurrected bodily from the dead. In our passage, the 11 disciples, there's no Judas with them at this point, the 11 disciples and some others were together when all of a sudden Jesus showed up. And I love how matter-of-factly this plays out, like nothing strange at all is happening. Verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. It's like he just walked into the room and was like, what's up, guys? Greetings. And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how you start that conversation. There's no smooth transition into it, probably. So he just says, peace to you. I'm not dead anymore. I'm here. And naturally, the disciples are a little bit freaked out. Uh, verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. They think that he's a ghost, because they all saw him die. They knew that he was dead. You know, this isn't the 21st century. This isn't the age of movie magic or David Blaine illusions. This is the first century. There's no faking a crucifixion. They saw with their, with their own eyes that he had died, and now he is in front of them alive again. And, you know, the human mind has to make sense somehow of what it's seeing, and they assume that it's a spirit in front of them, or a ghost. That makes more sense to them than that he's there in the flesh. And so how does Jesus respond? Uh, verses 38 through 40. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you can see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus says, look at my hands and feet. You can see my wounds. It's me. Touch me. You can't touch a spirit or a ghost because they don't have flesh and bones, but I do. I have flesh and bones. I've resurrected bodily. There's no body in the tomb because my body is right here with you now. Touch me and see. Next verse, verse 41, says that when he said these things, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, which is a kind of interesting phrase. They still disbelieved for joy. I think what it's getting at 
is that they wanted what they were seeing to be true, but they were still processing what they were seeing. It's, you know, similar to when we say the phrase, that's incredible, or that's unbelievable. The emphasis isn't so much on the credibility or believability. The emphasis is on joy. We're amazed. We're marveling. And the disciples were going through something very similar. similar. They were disbelieving for joy and marveling. And so Jesus steps things up. Uh, Still in verse 41 and going through 43, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. It's like Jesus is saying, Could a ghost do that? Could a spirit do that? Of course not, because I'm physically here. I've risen from the dead. I know it's hard to believe, but believe it. Touch me and see. Believe it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that Christ rose bodily? Believe it. Christ the Lord has risen today. Hallelujah. He has risen. It really happened. It's not a metaphor. It's not just some spiritual resurrection. He resurrected bodily. Believe it. But look, uh, let's be honest. The resurrection is kind of a crazy thing to believe. It's miraculous. As we all know, normally in this world, dead people stay dead. And so if we hear of a resurrection, we would rightly insist that there be some evidence for such an event before fully embracing it. Even in our passage, Jesus himself validates the skepticism some others might have uh, by showing them evidence. You know, Jesus doesn't refuse to give them evidence because they're doubting. He says, touch and see. Give me fish so I can eat it, and you can see that I'm not a ghost. I'm really here. I've resurrected bodily. He takes great care to demonstrate the evidence to those who doubt. And so what other evidence is there? Why have Christians for nearly 2,000 years believed and even proclaimed, tried to convince other people that a man rose from the dead, that Jesus resurrected? What evidence is there? Well, a lot could be said uh, to make the case for the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, In fact, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, uh, who used to be the Bishop of Durham, now he's a senior research fellow at Oxford, N.T. Wright wrote what is considered the landmark book on the subject, and it's a long one. It's 738 pages. That does include footnotes. I don't know if that makes it more or less appealing. Uh, But N.T. Wright basically makes the case that As long as you don't begin with an assumed philosophical bias against the possibility of miracles, as long as you don't approach the resurrection from the outset assuming it can't be true because miracles can't happen, as long as you're open to the possibility of believing in a miracle after seeing sufficient evidence, then the resurrection actually has as much attestation as any other historical event ever. And so, If you really, really want to know everything you could on the subject, that's where I'd point you, all 738 pages of the book, The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. But for now, let me mention three good pieces of evidence for the historical resurrection of Jesus. The first, I already talked about, the first is the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an easily falsifiable event. Uh, You know what I mean by that? Like, If I told you that last night an angel spoke to me in a dream, you can't verify or falsify that. You can't prove that I didn't. There's just no way to. 
Um, and, you know, as a side note, actually a lot of other world religions actually are based on claims that you can't falsify. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an easily falsifiable, falsifiable claim. If there were a body that could be produced, then the claim that Jesus resurrected is easily proven false. But the body was never produced. The tomb that Jesus was put in never became a shrine or a place of pilgrimage because it was inconsequential. You know, as the angel tells the women who come to the tomb, he's not here. And so that's the first piece of evidence, the empty tomb. Where is the body? Second, there is significant testimony from eyewitnesses. People saw the resurrected Jesus, and they told other people that they saw the resurrected Jesus. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a very important passage in Scripture regarding Jesus' resurrection and our own resurrection, but in 1 Corinthians 15, um, which was written about 20 years after the resurrection, Paul says that Jesus appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses, many of them at the same time. Now, this isn't several individuals having separate hallucinations out of some sort of sense of wish fulfillment. People were together and saw him at the same time. And they're, they're saying to one another, are, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Yes, I'm seeing what you're seeing. That's Jesus resurrected. And then Paul says that most of them are still alive. What Paul is saying is, you could go and ask them, did that happen? Did you really see him? Again, that's a really easily falsifiable claim that Paul is making. These people saw Jesus resurrected. You can go and ask them for yourselves. And you also have the the Gospels, the four Gospels, which are eventually written. And uh, they're also written from eyewitness testimony within the lifetime of witnesses. And so again, it's all easily falsifiable. And yet, There's no cases of supposed witnesses rising up and saying, hey, I never said that I saw Jesus resurrected. I didn't see Jesus resurrected. There's no cases of eyewitnesses claiming the opposite. No one saying, hey, I was there and something different happened than you're saying. The testimony of eyewitnesses overwhelmingly points to a real resurrection. And this connects to the third piece of evidence which is the explosion of the church, people who followed and worshipped Jesus as God. The apostles and the earliest followers of Jesus all proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ with boldness, and many of them suffered for it. Some were killed for it, which you don't endure for a hoax. You don't endure suffering. You don't endure death for something you know is false. The fact that the church exploded so closely after Jesus' death and resurrection is evidence of the resurrection itself. The followings of other messianic pretenders uh, around that time, they all fizzled out after the pretender died and then stayed dead. But if Jesus had stayed dead, if he had never appeared to people, if the tomb wasn't empty, then the church never would have launched. It never would have exploded. Everything that the church was based on was so fragile, so easy to prove false, that if it were based on a lie, if Jesus had never resurrected, then it never, then the church would have fizzled out too. But it didn't. People went to their deaths proclaiming what they knew was true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord, rose from the dead. The evidence is sufficient for everyone to place their faith in him. If you try to explain away the resurrection, you actually end up placing your faith in events and explanations that are even more unlikely and require greater leaps of faith to believe. 
the best explanation of the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the explosion of the church is that it really happened. And Jesus wants you to know for sure that it really happened. So Jesus says, touch me and see. I have really resurrected. So it happened. We see that we believe it. The resurrection happened, but what does the resurrection mean? That takes us to our second point, thus it is written. You know, I have this uh, bad habit of using dry measuring cups to measure out liquid amounts, and we have a liquid measuring cup that I could use, but for some reason I always grab one of our dry measuring cups, and the problem is it's hard to know when the dry measuring cup is fully filled with liquid. Um, A lot of times I'll be filling it and get to the top, and I look and I see it, and I think to myself, that's fully filled. But then I might pour in a little more just to be sure, and what do you know? More liquid fit into it. It wasn't fully filled. And so really the only way to know that the dry measuring cup is full of liquid, that's full of the liquid I'm measuring, is to keep pouring the liquid until it overflows, right? Because just by looking, I I know there have been times, uh, many times, where I thought that it was fully filled, but more liquid fit. And so it wasn't fully filled. But if I keep pouring until it overflows, then I can know for sure that it is truly fully filled, that it is fulfilled. In our passage, there are two types of fulfillment referenced. The fulfillment of the scriptures and the fulfillment of the forgiveness of sins. And so we're going to take a look at each of these and how they're connected to the resurrection. And so first, the fulfillment of scripture. After ensuring that his followers know that he has really resurrected bodily, Jesus begins to explain the meaning of his death and resurrection. And uh, he says in verses 44 and 45, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Everything written about me must be fulfilled. Jesus is saying that what has just happened, his death and his resurrection, were in fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. That's what the law and the prophets and the Psalms are shorthand for, the whole Old Testament. And so Jesus says that and uh, then opens their minds to understand how exactly he fulfilled them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, to see how his crucifixion and how his resurrection were fulfilling the scriptures. They basically had a Bible study together. And, uh, you know, we don't know exactly where in the Old Testament Jesus took them, but two places that he maybe took them, because they come up elsewhere in Luke and Acts, are Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16. And so, first in Isaiah 53, Um, Luke quotes Jesus as quoting Isaiah 53, just two chapters earlier in Luke. In Luke 22, Jesus says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And that's Isaiah 53, 12, which says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Pretty clear Uh, that it's a prophecy of a messianic figure that identifies with sinners and bears their sins, like what happened at the crucifixion, right? 
And typically when a, a single phrase or a verse from the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, it's meant to do more than just reference that one single phrase or quote. It's pointing to the whole passage that it comes from. And so other parts of Isaiah 53 say things like, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. Uh, You get the point. It's a beautiful passage. I just want to quote it all. Uh, But the point is that Jesus has fulfilled all that Isaiah 53 says in his death and in his crucifixion, in his substitutionary atonement on the cross. Jesus has fulfilled it. Or consider now, Psalm 16. Uh, Luke writes in Acts chapter 2 that the apostle Peter, during his sermon at Pentecost, quoted Psalm 16. And what does Peter say about Psalm 16? He says, how could King David say in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your holy one see corruption? For we know that David has died, he was buried, and his tomb is still with us to this day. If you went and opened up David's tomb, There's a dead body inside, a body that's seen corruption, right? And so Peter says, Psalm 16 can't ultimately be about David. It must ultimately be about someone else. And who might it be that fulfills Psalm 16? Jesus. Because Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead. Jesus wasn't abandoned there. He was raised from the dead. He resurrected. And if you go and look in Jesus' tomb, unlike David's tomb, it's empty, Jesus' flesh did not see corruption. He is alive and well, better than well. He's glorified. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 16 in his resurrection. And these are just two examples, but all of Scripture is pointing to Jesus in one way or another, and especially to his crucifixion and resurrection. It was God's plan all along. Jesus fulfilled the Word of God, Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures. But there's more to it than that. Yes, Jesus did do the things the Old Testament said the Messiah would do, but he didn't do it just to do it. It's not like a magic trick to wow an audience. There's a reason that the Messiah, that Jesus, fulfilled these things. And this gets into the second type of fulfillment mentioned in our passage, the fulfillment of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus fulfilled the scriptures in order to fulfill the work necessary to forgive sins. When Jesus concludes the Bible study through the Old Testament, he says in verses 46 and 47, Thus it is written, The Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Thus it is written, Therefore let it be known, set this in stone, this is the point, thus it is written. Here's what all of this is about. Christ suffered and died and rose so that you could repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was crucified and resurrected so that if you repent, you can know for sure that you have the forgiveness of sins. You can know that for sure. You can be assured of it, Jesus is saying. Do you see how? Do you see how the resurrection provides assurance of forgiveness? 
Because Jesus resurrected, you can be certain that if you repent and believe, your sins are forgiven. Do you see how? It's like the measuring cup. How do you know when it's full, when it overflows? In the same way, you can know that your sins are atoned for when Jesus resurrects, when he overflows out of death, when he overflows out of the tomb. Jesus' resurrection happens the moment the cup of God's wrath is fulfilled. Once it's full, it overflows. Jesus resurrects. He doesn't need to be dead anymore. The suffering and pain and dying and remaining dead is the cup filling up. But once it's full, once all the sins that need to be atoned for are paid in full, Jesus resurrects. It's the cup that's full overflowing. If you're in Christ, if you've rested upon him alone for salvation, then when Christ resurrected, your sins were atoned for and forgiven in full. You can know that for sure. When, when you feel unsure of your standing before God, when you feel nervous or uncertain about how the day of judgment will go for you, when Satan accuses you of not being worthy, when you think thoughts like, how could God forgive me for the things I've done? Remember the resurrection. Christ took your sins and nailed them to the cross. And when he resurrected, it was a receipt that your sins had been paid for in full. Nothing more needs to be done. You've been forgiven. You can be sure of it. Jesus wants you to be sure of it. He wants you to live in the freedom of that assurance. It's not a freedom to keep on sinning. That's slavery, actually. But you're not a slave to sin anymore. You've been set free. Assurance of forgiveness is freedom from the power of sin and death. And it's freedom to live in Christ. The biggest problems you have are sin and death, and they've been dealt with. And so now you're free to live in Christ. That's what the resurrection is about. The cup has been filled, fulfilled, and overflowed. Your sins are forgiven. You can be sure of that. You're free to live in Christ. But what does that look like? What does it look like to live the rest of our lives free in Christ? Well, that takes us to our final point. You are witnesses. In the Atlantic this past week, uh, the magazine, not the ocean, in the Atlantic this past week, Derek Thompson wrote an article titled, Why American Teens Are So Sad. And he cites a study done by the CDC that says that the share of American high, schoolers, high school students who say that they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. And it's not just subjective. Objectively, we know that eating disorders, self-harming behavior, and suicide are up among teens in that time frame. And it's not just COVID. These trends were beginning noticeably before the pandemic happened. And so Thompson asks the obvious question, why? Why is this happening? Why this increase in teenage sadness and hopelessness? And he proposes several reasons um, or contributing factors, things like social media, the 24-hour news cycle, social isolation, modern parenting strategies. Um, and uh, Ross Dowdat, who's a New York Times opinion columnist and practicing Roman Catholic, uh, Ross Dowdat actually tweets out this article, um, says it's a good article, but then he himself contributes another factor that he thinks plays a role. And he points out that Generation Z, today's teenagers, um, they're the least churched and least religious American generation ever. 
And one thing that being unchurched or secular or atheist, you name it, uh, one thing that that can't really give you is purpose in the midst of difficulty. It can't give you any sense of hope. And so more and more, our teens are growing up with less purpose and less hope than any generation ever before. But Christianity, uh, the gospel, the resurrection, actually gives both of those things. The resurrection gives us purpose and it gives us hope. It gives us what our teens and what all of us need more than ever. Purpose and hope are ultimately found in the resurrection. After explaining his fulfillment of scripture and forgiveness, Jesus says in verses 48 and 49, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. You are witnesses to these things of the fulfillment of God's word, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You are witnesses of these things, and you will bear witness with your entire life to these things. Your entire life is now going to be your witness. What you do, what you say, what you think, it all bears witness. Next few verses, uh, verses 50 through 53, show us the immediate response uh, to this by Jesus' followers. Uh, They say, um, starting in verse 50, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus blesses them. He ascends up to heaven, and what do they do? They worship him. And then they joyfully go to Jerusalem to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, just like he had instructed. And then they are continually blessing God in the temple, which is worship again, i.e. they repeat the cycle. And so, essentially, the the witness-bearing pattern is receive Jesus' blessing, worship him, go and Joyfully do what he has instructed you to do, and then repeat it. That's bearing witness, essentially. Everything you do your entire life being shaped by a rhythm of receiving Jesus' blessing, worshiping him, and then joyfully going to do what Jesus has asked. And we try to work those sorts of rhythms into our church life here at New Life. Um, have, Have you seen that from time to time? You know, our worship service has several iterations of this. Blessings of God are declared at various points. We worship him at several points, and then we set out to joyfully do what he's asked us at several points. And then the whole service ends with the benediction, which is a blessing. And it's almost better to think of that not so much as the end of the worship service, but as the beginning of your week. Your week begins with a blessing, and you're sent into your week where The appropriate response would then be to worship Jesus and joyfully obey him. Shaping your life that way bears witness, and bearing witness is your purpose. Receive Jesus' blessing, worship him, and joyfully obey his commands. That's your purpose, and it all flows from your hope. They're closely connected, purpose and hope. Uh, What you ultimately bear witness to with your life is the hope that is in you. You know, sometimes through what you do, sometimes through what you say, sometimes through what you sing, but it's all bearing witness to the hope that is in you. That's, you know, 1 Peter, uh, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. 
And that hope is that because Jesus was crucified on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sins and resurrected from the dead, you know for sure that if you have repented and rested on him alone for salvation, that your sins are forgiven and eternal debt that you could never repay has been paid in full on your behalf and you can't help but overflow, overflow with joy and gratitude and worship for the one who did that for you. And what's more, eternal life for you starts now. It's already started. Eternal life isn't something that starts after you die. It starts the day you come to faith in Jesus. Eternal life starts now. It's already started. And so each day you live in light of that eternity. You die more and more to sin. You live more and more to righteousness. You obey Jesus so that your sphere of influence is a little bit more like his kingdom and not the earth's kingdom. And when the pain and suffering of this life seems to be too much, you're not overcome because you know that even if you die, you will rise again in Jesus. He'll wipe away all your tears. You'll be ushered into the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, where crying and pain and mourning and death have been done away with. That's the hope that's in you. That's the hope of the resurrection. You know, um, a friend of ours, a friend of Holly's and mine, um, went into surgery about two weeks ago to have a tumor removed. And, um, you know, beforehand, the doctor said it was likely a benign tumor. That's what we all thought. But as they went to remove it, the, it became clear to the surgeon that it wasn't benign, that it was cancerous, because he could see that it had spread to her bones and her nerves. And just like that, this family, our friend, her husband, her children, just like that, they're all looking death right in the face. How do you face something like that? How do you face something like that if Jesus didn't resurrect? How do you face something like that if you don't believe that Jesus resurrected? I mean, if Jesus didn't resurrect, then there's no hope. There's no comfort. There's nothing to say to someone facing the possibility of death. You can try, but I promise it will ring hollow. It will come up empty. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then at best, you're about to cease to exist and leave behind a massive ripple effect of pain and suffering for the people that love you. That's the hope of secularity. That's the hope of atheism. atheism. At best, there's pain and suffering, and then you die, and there's nothingness. But what if Jesus really did resurrect? What if your sins really are forgiven? What if you really will resurrect too and have a restored and glorified body free from sin, free from pain, free from cancer? What if Jesus really did resurrect? And for our friend and her family who do believe, it makes all the difference in the world. They need Jesus' resurrection to be true like they never have before because if Jesus rose from the dead and he did, then you can face whatever life throws at you. Pain, sickness, persecution, suffering, even death itself. Doesn't mean it'll be easy, but you can face it because the worst thing that can happen to you is death and you know for sure that death has already been defeated. 
It doesn't get the last word. Death might win a battle, but it's not going to win the war. Jesus will win the war. You have hope beyond the grave. You have life after death to look forward to. We say it every week, but it really is the anchor of our faith and hope and purpose. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again for you. He's passed through the threshold of death and resurrection, and he intends to bring you through too. That's our hope. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. That's the one worthy of all blessing and glory and honor. Death will not have the final word. Jesus has defeated it in his resurrection, and we will resurrect with him too one day. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the resurrection of your son. That the confusion and pain that flows from every direction in this life will one day be put to rest for us. We will resurrect, we will join you in heaven, and we will live in perfect fellowship with you, perfect joy. Father, we want to start celebrating that now. We want to praise you for that now. We are so thankful. You have lifted us up out of the deep, dark valley to an eternal hope that we too will resurrect following Jesus' footsteps. Pray this all in his name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.